So I was like, oh yeah, this is just a GraphQL library. But then as I, you know, actually started using it and thinking kind of, you know, this is going to replace Axios throughout our application and we're just going to be using React Query and doing GraphQL queries and mutations. That was the mindset that I went in with it. But then as I used it, I realized that, yeah, like you said, it's really not about replacing any of those. You're like, oh, I'm still using Axios. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of a surprise. You get in there and you're like, oh, oh, okay. Whatever. Right. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's great. And so we're still using that and we are using it with GraphQL as well. And I think we're wrapping GraphQL request with this. Very common. Yeah, that's the cool thing about it is you really don't need to think about it as like a just strictly fetching data. It kind of works just with promises, right? Anything that is asynchronous, it can work with. So you can use that to pretty much do anything. Big thanks to our partners, Linode, Fastly, and LaunchDarkly. We love Linode. They keep it fast and simple. Check them out at linode.com slash changelog. Our bandwidth is provided by Fastly. Learn more at fastly.com and get your feature flags powered by LaunchDarkly. Get a demo at launchdarkly.com. This episode is brought to you by Retool. Retool is the low-code platform for developers to build internal tools super fast and super easy. They have a ton of integrations and templates to start with. With a click of a button in seconds, you can start with a new Postgres admin panel application, kick off an admin panel for reading from and writing to your database built on Postgres. This app lets you look through, edit, and add users, orders, and products. It's too easy to get started with Retool. Head to retool.com slash changelog to learn more and try it for free. Again, that's retool.com slash changelog. is JS Party, your weekly celebration of JavaScript and the web. We record live on YouTube each and every Thursday at 1 p.m. U.S. Eastern. Subscribe to our channel for notifications at youtube.com slash changelog and join in the conversation on Twitter. We are at JS Party FM. Okay, let's get right into it. Hey, it's party time, y'all. Hello, ahoy hoy, welcome to JS Party. I'm your host this week, Nick Nisi, and I am very excited to have a special guest, and that is Tanner Lindsley. Tanner, how's it going? It's going great. How are you? I'm doing excellent. Welcome to the show. Thanks for being here, and we are excited to talk about the Tan Stack, uh, which is a really exciting set of projects that you have worked on and created. And yeah, so let's dig right in. Let's and uh, well, first off, maybe tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. I'm an open source software developer, entrepreneur. Let's see, I've been developing for probably about eight years, 10 years, somewhere in between there. Been doing React. I started using React about a year after it came out. So not like super early adopter, but I've been using it for quite a while. What got you into that, into React? Well, I, you know, initially I was Angular fanboy, right? <laughs> Whatever I'm into, I dig my heels in real hard. So I just yeah. loved Angular, and eventually I just started hitting bottlenecks and design constraints and architectural questions that I didn't like the answers to, and one day it just became apparent that I needed to change. So I took the plunge, and I actually took the plunge from Angular into both React and Redux at the same time. So it, it was a big change. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, completely different mind shift. And just to give like a context for the time period, this probably would have been Angular 1.x then? Is that right? 
Yeah, this is Angular1.x, AngularJS, back when it was yeah. still cool. Like, I look at <laughs> Angular now and I don't even know what I'm looking at. But yeah, it, it actually reminds, sure. Vue remind, reminds me a little bit more about the Angular that I used to use. So Nice. I have luckily avoided Angular.js in my career so far, but not true with Angular 2+. Plus. But yeah, cool. So you got into React around said like the 2014 time period. What got you thinking about open source? Because you have a lot of really cool and popular open source projects. What got you started with that? You know, believe it or not, I was in open source before I even started really programming a ton. Just because from my young, naive mindset, it was like a place to get free software, right? So yeah. It's like, wow, people are building things for free and I can just take them, you know? So I was, I was a leecher for a very long time as a youth and, and even in my early development career when I was doing WordPress for a long time before I even became like a quote unquote real programmer, right? I used so much open source stuff for WordPress and that was kind of when I started getting into contributing like little bug fixes and dealing with PHP and it was a mess. So Really, when I kind of started diving into it was when I learned about Angular and I learned that it was this open source piece of software that was just really cool and really changed my life, to be honest. I love React, but Angular was my first big love into front end. And when I learned it was open source, I just thought that was awesome. And then I learned that I could start creating my own open source libraries I remember going to meetups. In fact, I remember one of the very earliest meetups I went to. Kent C. Dodds was actually there here in Utah. Nice. And it was, it was, I think it was one of our first meetups for both of us, but he was there presenting you know, one of his very first open source libraries that he had created. And he's like, yeah, I, I created my own library. And I was like, man, that guy's cool. I want to do that too. And, you know, and it, I thought he was my hero and, you know, he was doing this awesome stuff. Little did I know, he's still learning too. We all don't know what we're doing, but we like to make it look like we do. So yeah. <laughs> from that point, I just kind of became obsessed with, I'm going to build these great tools in open source and give them back to the world for all of the leeching that I've done in my past. And that's how it all started. The reasons that I'm into open source today and even in the last few years have changed drastically from that mindset. But that's kind of what got me started. Nice. And so now, today, do you work on open source full-time, or what do you do kind of as your day-to-day? So a majority of my day is spent on my startup, Nozzle. So I started Nozzle with two of my other co-founders. Our CEO is in the office behind me, and our VP of backend in the other office behind him. So us three, we started Nozzle about seven years ago. And it's always hard to describe what Nozzle does, but essentially we are reverse engineering Google search rankings. So Google is crawling the internet, but we are crawling Google to find out, you know, where people rank, why they rank where they do. Basically take everything on the search page and just turn it into big data. So that's what Nozzle does. And we do it at scale. And there's a lot of hard, fun problems that come with trying to do that. So Nice. Yeah, and I, I can probably guess that you're using React in that stack for Nozzle. Absolutely. <laughs> Nozzle uses a lot of React. It uses, I mean, to be honest, a lot of the tools that I build or have built in the last few years have been there because I needed them at Nozzle. It's kind of this symbiotic relationship where if I can build a tool that's open source and help other people, 
and also get their help in, you know, testing the library and, you know, getting the features so that they're solid. And there's only two of us front-end developers here at Nozzle, but sometimes I feel like there's hundreds with, you know, all the help and the people who help out with my open source libraries. In a way, they're, they're kind of directly contributing back to what I built for Nozzle. So it's, it's kind of cool to see the two of them work together. Yeah, that's awesome. So we are going to dive into some of the projects that make up the TanStack, but I wanted to ask you about that specifically. Like TanStack is like a great way to like market this set of projects together. And I'm wondering like how you got started with that or like that mentality or thinking mindset when it came to like packaging and or marketing these tools together. And the tools are React Query, React Table, and React Charts. Right. You know, I have to give credit to Sean Wang, or, you know, at Swix, as his handle's called online. One day I was talking with Sean, and he's like, man, you got these libraries, it's so great. I was like, oh, thanks. And he's like, well, you need a brand? And I was like, I know, I, I just use my name for now. He's like, no, it's it's the tan stack. And he kind of said it, you know, I don't know if it's tongue-in-cheek, but like funny way, you know. And I was like, oh, man, no, that's so... It just seems so like narcissistic, you know, and then he, I think he told a few other people and then one other person was like, well, the tan stack. And I don't know, at one point I just said, okay, it sticks and it sounds cool because it rhymes with jam stack. And, you know, and I was like, yeah. yeah, let's do it. Why not? So it wasn't a super like conscious decision at first. It was just more of like a hashtag, right? After he did that and I started calling it the tan stack, I was like, well, now I'm really deep in, so I have to buy the domain and I have to get all the things, you know. So that's kind of how it all started with, like, the branding. Nice. And early on, so the only other big library I built before these was React Static. And I initially built React Static under Nozzle's GitHub, which ended up being kind of strange because it really didn't have anything to do with what we did at Nozzle. The goals weren't aligned and... I actually ended up not using React Static that much anyway. So that's another story for another day. So React Static's gone. I just figured I needed a home that, you know, wasn't my startup, but wasn't my personal name to kind of put these projects and let them even potentially live on beyond me, right? Like the tan stack, yeah, it's got tan in it, but it doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, if I were to leave, it couldn't be called tan stack still. It's just kind of yeah, fun. Absolutely. That's been the interesting thing too. Like, like for me, coming to know about you has been through React Query. And we'll kind of talk, dive into that library a little bit here after the break. But I saw that and the docs for it have been really great going there. And I get a little pop-up in the docs that, you know, talks about the tan stack. And that's kind of where I got the introduction to that. That's all just to say that it is very catchy and oh, memorable. Thanks. So <laughs> that's good. Yeah, I think it's working. Yeah, I think <laughs> <Yeah>. so. <laughs> Props to Swix for that name because it's really nice. I own lunch if you come and visit me. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> awesome. So what has that journey been like so far? Like how, you know, creating these popular libraries that have quite a few stars on GitHub, for example, and just a very React query in particular, that's the one I'm most familiar with, but it's very popular. You know, I've heard about it on other podcasts and see articles about it all the time. And I really like using it at my day job. But what has it been like, like riding that wave of popularity with these really nice open source tools? It just kind of comes at you really fast. Like I remember I wasn't surprised necessarily that I was able to get a couple thousand stars with React Query. I had done, 
you know, React Table was the first library I built that kind of got a fair amount of stars, but it was it was much slower, you know, over time, and so it didn't really take me by surprise with React Table just because it's slow. But with React Query, it was different because I could tell early on that there was something kind of magical about the timing and all of the ecosystem that it was released in, that it was prime time for a library like this to come out. And I could tell because I, I wrote it internally for Nozzle at first, used it internally for you know, a couple months, and then decided it was time to open source it. And when I released it, like I got a lot of stars, more stars than I had ever gotten on any other project really early on. And I was marketing it. I was, I was telling people about it, but not necessarily any more that I was doing with React Table. I still think that it could be that React Query is just a little more general purpose mm-hmm. than any other library. So I think comparing the two isn't really apples to apples for me, but it's been a whirlwind. Like lots of influx of users, so many feature requests, and, you know, so many bugs. There have been so many people that have stepped up to help and people that have stepped up to voice their opinions as well that <laughs> just, you know, the kind of the leechers of today. And there's a lot of things that have come up, but none of them necessarily have been new. They've just been at a bigger scale than I'm used to. So okay. luckily I've had great people step up to help. Neek Bosch and Dominic Dorfmeister or TK Dodo. These have been two people that have really stepped up with React Query specifically to help triage and work on features with me and fix bugs. Like, you know, I'm more of the inventor mentality than inventor personality. And I can't tell you how valuable it's been to have people who are definitely more of the maintainer personality step up and help me take care of things. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, I imagine it must be tough with, you know, being a co-founder in a startup and having these very popular libraries how do you find the time? Is it really just the influx of help that you get from other maintainers and other other contributors to the projects that helps you stay on top of that? A lot of like bug fixes and triaging does happen asynchronously, like not during the day. And for the most part, I don't have to do too much. I kind of set aside at least an hour every day, maybe at night when things kind of calm down to just go through as many issues as I can and pull requests and make sure that things are are moving well. I try and get on my Discord channel and, you know, answer any really pertinent questions that pop up. But for the most part, I'm I'm trying to let the community handle it as much as I can just for my own sanity. Because it is a lot to juggle a startup and also a bunch of open source and like my family, right? There's just a lot of a lot of things to do and not enough time to do it. So managing time is probably one of the hardest things to do uh, as a maintainer. Absolutely. Yeah. When it comes to like the most time that I'll spend on a library is usually when Nozzle needs something new or I need something new out of the libraries that either doesn't exist or needs to exist in a new version. And that's kind of when I can justify taking like a large chunk of a few days or something and say, okay, I'm going to work on these new features for the library, which I need for my startup. And, you know, that feels right to me. And so, like, for the last few days, I've been taking maybe half of the day and and working on React Table, the new version for React Table, because there's new things that I need for Nozzle that I need in this new version. So it's easy for me to justify taking that time and 
investing that into the library. So yeah, absolutely. Scratching your own itch raises all boats to mix metaphors. <laughs> yeah. And I think it's important to like dog food your own libraries, right? That's one of the reasons yep. that I'm still around on these libraries because I need them. Yep. They're not just some weekend project that is now a burden. Like they're just as much of a dependency as my, of my business as it is, you know, of my stack. What's up, party people? This episode is brought to you by Micro. Micro, aka M3O, is a new cloud platform built for developers by developers. Our good friend, Asa Maslam, is leading this. And if you're tired of AWS and feeling overwhelmed by the cloud, infinite billing, and an endless sea of docs, it is time for a change. The Micro team is reimagining the cloud for the next generation. M3O is a new developer-friendly platform to explore, search, and use simpler APIs for everyday consumption all in one place. Get access to the APIs you need in one click and test them right there on the web before using them. Simple, fast, and affordable. You won't get burned by bottomless billing. You top up your account and pay as you go. And right now, they're in early development and building up the first set of APIs and they're looking for feedback from developers. Sign up and get $5 in free credits. Kick the tires, give them your input so they can build the best APIs you want to use every single day. Learn more at m3o.com. Again, m3o.com. Admittedly, I was very excited to get you on this podcast to talk about the project of yours that I've used the most and used quite extensively at my day job, and that is React Query. And so maybe I thought we could start with you describing the power of React Query, or like how would you describe what it is and what you can do with it? I don't know. My description has changed over the last two years, right? Uh, as people ask what it is. I still think one of the best descriptions is just what's on the reactquery.tanstack.com is, is says performant and powerful data synchronization for React. And that's really what it is. I think a lot of people equate React Query with a, like a fetching library when they first hear about it. And they're like, yep, nice. It's, you know, it's going to replace my thunks or it's going to replace my promise, my fetch promise hook or whatever. And uh, yes, it can replace some of that functionality. It, but it's agnostic to how you fetch. Really, it's more of like a coordinator of fetching, if you can think of it that way. And it, and it really like is more of a library for synchronization instead of just fetching kind of one-offs. It almost takes people by surprise when they're like, oh, sweet, now I get to rip out all my use state and use effect stuff and I put React Query in. But then they realize that it's not just fetching once, it's kind of like, oh, it's wow, it's keeping my stuff up to date. It's almost like a stream, a, a meta stream of data coming into your application. <laughs> it's not WebSockets or anything live like that. It's just using intelligent user input actions to trigger those refetches under the hood. So synchronization is always the word that comes to my mind when people are like, what is React Query? Well, it's synchronization between remote data and your application. And the next word that comes to mind is cache. You know, it is a temporary mirror of things that live in a remote location in a, in a very accessible way. So a little different than how I initially described it, but 
it's what yeah. it is. So, no, I like that a lot, and I think it's very accurate based on my usage of it as well. I'll tell you, like me coming into it. So I came into it about a year ago, and I was kind of thrown in with with this. And I think we were looking at another tool, like maybe SWR at the time, and like we're also creating a lot of new GraphQL endpoints. And so I kind of immediately just based on the work that we were doing, equated it with that. And then looking through like the API, it has like a mutation or uh, is that what it's called? A mutate? Yeah. Use mutation. Use mutation. That's it. Uh, Use mutation hook. So I was like, oh yeah, this is just a GraphQL library. But then as I, you know, actually started using it and thinking kind of, you know, this is going to replace Axios throughout our application and we're just going to be using React Query and doing GraphQL queries and mutations and kind of like that was the mindset that I went in with it. But then as I used it, I realized that, yeah, like you said, it's really not about replacing any of those. Like, we're still oh, using I'm Axios. Still using Axios. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of a surprise. You get in there and you're like, oh, oh, okay. You know. Whatever. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's great. And so we're still using that and we are using it with GraphQL as well. And I think we're wrapping GraphQL request with this very common to make those. Yeah. That's the cool thing about it is you really don't need to think about it as like a, just strictly fetching data. It is like, it kind of works just with promises, right? Anything that is asynchronous, it can work with. So you can use that to pretty much do anything. Yeah. I mean, I I've had people even wrap like SQL asynchronous SQL light huh. things with react query. People have wrapped a lot of different things, you know, if it supports a promise. There's even people that will use it with Firebase and they will, the initial request to Firebase will be a promise. And then they'll also set up a subscription on Firebase and say, anytime that it changes, we'll just update kind of the data that's in React Query or invalidate whichever way you want to do it. So yeah, as long as it's got a promise, yeah. That's the the powerful piece of it. And and then, I mean, that's kind of half of it, right? And then the other piece is, I don't know how best to describe it in like technical React terms, but like yeah, every query that you do, you give it a key and that key can be like a string. We use a string a lot, or it can be like an array or an object. And that all gets serialized into some unique value. And then it's used as like an identifier in the like global, quote unquote, global state that React Query is, is storing the values for everything. And that's a way that you can reference it and pull it out later to use everywhere. That is super powerful, I think, because then, you know, I can use a use query anywhere. And the way that I create it is like basically wrapping use query with my own hook and yeah, then using that hook. hook somewhere else. That's a great pattern. I think that's the best way to use React Query is creating a custom hook for some asset and then just passing that hook around. It encapsulates so much of good practices, I guess, of like not repeating, you know, keys that you might have typos in and having to pass the functions around everywhere. You can yeah. encapsulate all of your side effects and your data manipulation that happens in between fetching and supplying it to your components. It can all happen in like one place. And mm-hmm. yeah, that is the powerful part about it is that you can use that custom hook after that, you can use it anywhere in your application, you know, at any level. And you can use it as many times as you want. You could have like, you know, 10 or 100 of those use query instances on the same page, but it's really only ever going to result in one query going out. 
Right. Yeah, that's the super powerful thing is just being able to use that. But then also that goes back to synchronization that you used as kind of a, a keyword to describe it is when you start using that hook everywhere and then that data gets updated through some invalidation process, it's going to update everywhere that's using that data. And then React just takes over and, and re-renders from there. So yeah, that's the super powerful part of it. Also like using it with some of the things that I really like about it are how much configuration that you can really do, but also how much you don't really have to do. But you can really customize how it controls its cache and things like that. Do you want to to maybe talk about some use cases for that? Yeah, I love how you say like you can configure everything, but it comes with some automatic stuff. And in the docs, I actually call this uh, like aggressive but sane defaults, right? <laughs> yes. And that's exactly what it is. Like there's an option for everything, but you should never have to supply everything and you infer as much as you can. And the defaults that come with React Query are very aggressive. The defaults are there to basically overfetch. And like, like the first priority is just to keep your data up to date all the time, like at really at almost at any cost. So every time you refocus the window, like there's no stale time. So data is always considered out of date as soon as it hits, you know, the client. And anytime you click the screen, re, you know, refocus the window, it's going to go fetch everything again. And if the network reconnects again, it's going to go fetch everything. So it's very heavy on fetching out of the box. And I think that's a pretty safe bet for most people. Some people like to worry a lot about network bandwidth. And I think that is a concern if you are building a very specific kind of application for low bandwidth devices, right? But for the most right. part, if you're fetching really small JSON blobs, I mean, latency might be a thing to worry about. But other than that, the user can always refresh the page. You know, if they refresh the page five times, they're going to be making five brand new, you know, rounds of requests. So it really shouldn't be any different than the user doing that. That should not bring your app to its knees, <laughs> So I feel like that's been a really, a really good default. Just kind of be aggressive. And it's easy to teach people how to like tune it back from that point. You know, you can change the stale time to make it so that when data comes back to your application, it's considered fresh and up to date for a certain amount of time before React Query will try and go and fetch the latest version. Mm -hmm. So if you've got some asset coming back from uh, your API and you know that it's like never ever changing. I, I, a good situation is like the demos that use the Pokemon API, right? <laughs> Pokemon are not changing. Like their stats and all the info, the Pokemon API is just like, it's not changing really ever. You could put stale time to infinity and, you know, React Query is like, okay, I got the copy. Don't need it again. <laughs> That's it, you know. But React Query's caught them all. Yeah. But if you have something like an admin dashboard for teams of people that are working together, you'll have objects that are getting edited and saved all the time between people. And that's a situation where regardless of whether you set up WebSockets or something to listen to those changes, it's just kind of nice to be able to, you know, you come back to your application and everything's just up to date, right? Mm -hmm. You don't have to do anything. So that's where yeah. like, the aggressive part really comes in handy. But like I said, you can tune that back as far as you want, right? Yeah, definitely. And I think I agree with you on 
the balance between aggressiveness and usability with that. For the most part, like we haven't touched that in in our app. One of the key distinctions or uh, highlighted behaviors that we see with React Query is what you said, you know, we're, we're kind of transitioning between like the Chrome dev tools and the app and you immediately see new network lines going into the, the network tab right? because we're refocusing and it's invalidating that cache or the cache is invalidated. So it's refetching. Yeah. But then on the other hand, or at the same time, like we have some specifically, I just worked on some, some code that's pulling in some documents. And so it's like kind of bigger raw HTML blobs that it's pulling in and we'll use, and those are not changing. So I set the cache time on that as like an hour so that they're only pulled in once and we don't have to go fetch them again probably throughout the entire session. But that's something that I can really just configure because I'm making those custom hooks wrapped around React Query every time. I can just configure that per hook and have it set up so that anyone who tries to you know fetch those documents is always going to get this data that is cached for an hour versus you know when we're pulling up like live user data that is immediately invalidated. So every time it'll try and refetch that. And it's overall a good balance. The configuration is there when I need it, but otherwise I don't have to think about it. Yeah, that's great. That's exactly why I designed it the way I did. So I was going to say, there's also something to be said about like the garbage collection features of it too, that it's easy. Caching is a hard problem, but what we're talking about is is like in-memory caching, but React Query also has some like semi-persistent caching too, where if you request something and it gets cached and then you kind of leave that screen and it becomes unused, right? It still stays there in the cache for a specific amount of time so that if you ever go back to that screen, it will show you the outdated data right immediately and then get the newest stuff in the background. And it also has like this automatic garbage collection lifecycle behind the hood that's saying if there's old unused data you know, that lives beyond a certain amount of time, kind of like a max age inside of the cache, then it gets garbage collected. Is that all based on like max age or does it somehow know like what is actually being used and rendered by a, like a live component? It's based on both. So the max, the max age garbage collection lifecycle never kicks in if you have active subscriptions to that, to any data on the screen. But if you have a subscription to a user and there's five hook instances, and then if all five of those instances disappear off the screen and that hook user data is still in the cache, by default, it will sit there for five minutes. And if that five okay. minutes passes and a new instance doesn't pop up to like kind of like bring it out of cold storage, then it gets evicted from the cache and garbage collected. Nice. Another cool thing that I really like about it is really the way that React Query kind of hides, not hides, but it makes working with the fact that the data that you're getting is asynchronous, it makes it really kind of seamless in a lot of ways. And one of those ways could be like we're saying, just wrapping the hook and then, you know, I could provide it with an empty array whenever use query is the is loading flag from that is true or whatever. But another thing is you can set like a primary set of data for it so that it'll just return that immediately. Is that like also a way that you could like hydrate it with like, I don't know, server, uh, server provided yeah. data? There, man, that goes into a lot of cool things, just what you just barely just said. So there's a couple of different concepts there. There's a concept of placeholder data, where placeholder data is just like fake data. It's nothing that you really want to keep in your cache. It's just kind of like a loading state data that you know you can provide. 
Sometimes it's an empty array or an object with a bunch of like, you know, John Doe type fields in it. So there's placeholder data. Then there's initial data, which initial data is more of like, hey, here's the data that I'm fetching. I already know what it is. I already have it. So I'm going to provide it with initial data and it gets put into the cache. So that is useful if you are, say you fetched a list of users and then you're moving into a detailed user view. You can take the user that you already fetched from the list of users and use it as the initial data for the user subscription, the individual nice. one. And it will kind of, you know, quote unquote, hydrate that way. But if you're doing, if you're actually talking about SSR hydration, there's much better ways of doing that with React Query. There's a whole SSR kind of recipe to get a great experience with it. And really the way that that works is you just kind of use all of your queries as if the data is there. And then during your SSR stage, you basically just kind of suspend your SSR and prefetch the data that you need into your cache. And then you render and all of the use queries just kind of work synchronously because the data is already there. So it's definitely a spectrum of like, Temporary data to persistent data and, you know, when it gets picked up. There's a recipe for everything in React Query, so. Yeah, definitely. And that is kind of what, like, those recipes allow you to, for example, from your component, really be able to trust that the data is there. It's also suspensified, or it does support suspense so that you can use that if you like as well. Yeah, some people don't like that if you use... I don't mind either way. I like, you know, use query. I just kind of have it return a query object and it's kind of universal throughout the app. You Mm -hmm. got asynchronous queries and you got to handle your loading and your error states, compose them together, whatever. Some people don't like that that leaks into everything. So you can set up suspense and just kind of say, you know, use query and just the data is going to be there all the time because you know that the queries are going to suspend your rendering until it is. So you're just kind of trading that you know, status Boolean checking in your rendering, you're exchanging that for, you know, suspense and error boundaries is really all you're doing. Yep. Nice. Now there is one other piece, a couple of other pieces actually that I wanted to touch on. And one really cool thing about React Query is that it does actually come with its own dev tools. We'll give you the idea to ship custom dev tools as part of the project. I think it was natural looking at other tools that do it like Redux has dev tools and Apollo has yep. dev tools. A lot of things have dev tools. And I also saw, you know, Kent likes to talk about shipping your own dev tools a lot as well. It's just kind of been around. I knew that I wanted dev tools from the very beginning because I wanted to be able to inspect this. You know, the life cycle of React Query it can be a mystery sometimes unless you have the dev tools there to show you what's going on. So I knew I wanted them from the very beginning. I just didn't know how I wanted to implement them. I looked into building like an actual Chrome extension and I can tell you that that was very quickly not going to work for me, mostly because of the time that I was going to have to invest. Like it was not worth the ROI. So (laughs) like Chrome extensions are like a bunch of domain knowledge that I don't really want to have and I don't really care about right now, maybe in the future, but I don't want right now. So I'm like, I'm just going to use the tools that I have and that I know, you know, work for me. And that's just, I'm just going to build a component. It's a React component. You can put it anywhere you want. And it's the dev tools. And I'm going to ship it with a bunch of inline styles 
I even made like a little styled component type thing that just uses inline styles and, and a theme and everything. It just kind of ships all in one inclusive component. And it worked out great. And then you can render it wherever you want, or you can just use the React dev tools like main one. It just renders at the bottom of your screen type of thing. And it works great. There's some drawbacks that people are like, oh, I wish it wasn't taking up part of my screen. You know, I wish I could have it in an external window. Yeah, sorry. If that's really that much of a pain, you can go build the DevTools extension because I'm not doing that. Yeah. At C2FO where I work, we were pretty used to seeing the little floating flower down at the bottom of the screen. Yeah, I, I, li- I love seeing that now. You know, <laughs> I see it in random places too on videos and like screenshots, and it just kind of makes me giggle a little bit, you know, just like, oh, look, there's the, there's the React flower. (laughs) (laughs) And then one other thing I wanted to touch on with this, and correct me if my, my timeline or understanding of things is wrong, but I think that when I came in and started using this project, it was written in JavaScript, but now it's written in TypeScript. And I'm just curious about the transition to that. I mean, I've known that TypeScript is in my future since I heard about it, right? Types are great, and they come with a lot of great things. I didn't know how to write TypeScript, and and I didn't have a lot of experience with typed languages. I just know from programming principle perspective, like, yes, I want types. I want things to be strict. It's going to help me out. But it was difficult to, like, go all in on that when I didn't have that skill set. I wasn't using TypeScript at Nozzle, and I wasn't using it in any of my personal projects or my open source. So I was really new. And I just knew that one day there's going to come a point where I have to do it. you know. And React Table almost got me there because there's a lot of people who use React Table. But for the most part, there's people in the community that were like, we're going to build types for React Table. I said, like, sweet, do it. I don't want to have to do that. Yeah. And I've been getting away with not using types at Nozzle for a while. I was. And then React Query got huge. And at some point, you just got to bite the bullet and say, well, I guess I'm learning TypeScript. <laughs> and there's a lot of great things that come with TypeScript. And I'm glad that we moved. But I can't even remember when we moved over. I actually didn't even do the initial TypeScript migration for React Query. That was actually all Nick Bosch, who is just a wizard. He really understands TypeScript. And he has more of an object-oriented like background, which is why you'll see a lot of that in React Query Core. You know, there's a lot of classes, and that's all great. TypeScript and classes work great together, and the model actually fits really well since 99% of React Query isn't even React. It's just kind of just TypeScript. So yeah, after that, I was like, well, my library's in TypeScript now. I got to learn it. So I started learning TypeScript and migrating Nozzle over, migrating some of my smaller tools, internal tools over to use it, and then... Right now, I'm actually building React Table version 8, and it's all in TypeScript. It's a full, I want to say I'm migrating, but it's really just a rewrite. You know, I'm, I'm rewriting it in TypeScript with entirely new, not new, I wouldn't say new API. That's going to scare people. It's going to be breaking changes, but it's going to be new for TypeScript. So, yeah, unavoidable, nice. but great. <laughs> yeah. So it's safe to say that it's kind of lived up to the thoughts that you had or the hopes that you had for converting over to TypeScript? Yeah, it's writing libraries. So this is something that I had to learn very quickly, but writing library TypeScript code is just a whole other ballgame than just using TypeScript. Unless you've written a library 
that uses generics and is, you know, even moderately complex, you have no idea, you know, you don't know what you don't know. So yeah. I'll just say that, that writing generic in code and TypeScript is just like you're writing in the meta meta level of programming. It's mind boggling sometimes. So, yeah. but it's a lot of fun. <laughs> It is a lot of fun. And I'm, sometimes I've gone too deep with that. I got sucked into a plug-in rabbit hole with React Table for the last nine months. And I'm finally back out of it and just kind of using TypeScript instead of trying to bend its limits and you know, go crazy <laughs> with generics. So yeah, <laughs> it was difficult to learn. I'm still learning, but I feel like I'm in a good place now where I recognize the trade-offs. There are definitely places where I wish TypeScript had better answers for things that I want to do. And most of those are centered around generics and how to type flexible APIs. So some of that may never yep. change, but that's okay. Yeah. Well, hopefully it does. Hopefully they can bring that functionality to keep it as flexible as possible while still being as performant and powerful as it is. I mean, just to make sure that the TypeScript team knows that I appreciate even just the work that's gone into the last you know, year or year and a half of TypeScript has just been phenomenally amazing. Like it's, that's been another reason too, that it took me so long to change over is just because I, I felt like it just wasn't quite where I wanted it to be yet. And, but I can tell you that for the regular use case, there's very, very little that TypeScript can't do now. We deserve a better internet, and the Brave team has the recipe for bringing it to us. Start with Google Chrome, keep the extensions, the dev tools, and the rendering engine that make Chrome great. Rip out the Google bits, we don't need them. Mix in ad and tracker blocking by default, quick access to the Tor network for true private browsing, and an opt-in reward system so you can get paid to view privacy-respecting ads. Then turn around and use those rewards to support your favorite web creators like us. Download Brave today using the link in the show notes and give tipping a try on changelog.com. So we talked about React Query quite a bit and that fantastic framework or utility for writing synchronized code that is coordinated throughout our front end, trying to use the, the keywords that you used to describe it in that sentence. But I did want to touch on another piece of the TAN stack, and that is a React Table. So this is an interesting project, and I think you said in the last section that you're working on version 8 of it right now. Mm -hmm. Is that right? Yep. Nice. To be honest, I hadn't really heard of it before too long ago. I think I saw you talking about it and maybe uh, probably in the context of TypeScript. I think you, I saw you talking about it on Twitter, but it is a, a pretty interesting library. And one of the biggest things that like immediately struck me when I was researching it was the fact that it's not actually like a table component, right? It's just a series of utilities for you to build your own, which is fascinating. So do you want to talk about what it is and kind of introduce us in a way yeah. that is better than what I just did? So I'm going to throw out a term here and then I'm going to describe kind of the background of this term. But React Table is very much a headless UI 
utility, right? Yeah, and I people like are becoming very familiar with this term, headless UI, because even the Tailwind guys have built headless UI. It's kind of the same concept where they're building a UI library, but it just has like no styles and it's very unopinionated about what it renders. And they actually took the term headless and they branded it, right? So yeah, a project by Tailwind Labs. Perfect. Okay, so I got it right. It's becoming more popular, this term, but back when I learned about it, way, way back when, just a couple of years ago, was there was a utility that Kent wrote. And if you can't tell, I, I just love everything Kent does. I hope he loves the stuff that I do too. But <laughs> Kent wrote a utility called Downshift. And it's a select, it's for building autocomplete and select experiences, like select box experiences, but it doesn't render anything. It just gives you the utilities to build your own. And I was like, this is genius because especially for tables, so version six of React Table was a component and it came with all the bells and whistles. Like you drop it in and it just works, but it was the worst to maintain because it had like over 120 props for customizing uh -huh. HTML. And then within those options, there was just like, okay, now you can override the style and the class name, or you can give it your own component. And, you know, once you start dealing with, once you own any of the markup or the styles, you're in for a world of hurt because yeah. people do not like your styles. People don't want your <laughs> styles. They don't want your markup. Even if they think they do, they won't in the future. I knew this because I built my own React Table library. I was like, I'm going to build React Table. And then I dropped it into Nozzle that I needed it for. And I was like, well, this doesn't match at all. Like the style here does not <laughs> match. And we just used it because we needed to, you know, I was like, okay, I'm actually going to tweak React Table's core styles to kind of look like Nozzle. That way I don't have to do any work. But everybody else that uses React Table, their tables are going to look like Nozzle. So I hated that. And a lot of other people hated it too. And I would listen to people talk about competitor libraries like AG Grid or Material UI Table. And they're like, I can't change the theme. I can't change the styles. I can't override this. What if I want to move, you know, this part of the table to the bottom? I'm like, oh, sorry. And that's why when I saw Downshift, I said, this is genius. I'm going to take React Table and I'm just going to rip it into two pieces. I'm going to rip all of the, all the UI and the styles and the markup away from the logic and just turn it into a render prop component. And I was like, let's do it. I was in the middle of writing React Table version 7 render prop style when Hooks came out. And I was like, oh man, this is so <laughs> good. It was like the day that Hooks came out, I downloaded it and I started building React Table in Hooks. And it was nice. the best thing ever. I even built a compatibility library for hooks so you could use it on you know version 16 dot whatever but still get hooks so you could use react table i'm glad that i didn't end up shipping that but that was fun anyways it's a headless library now there were some people who definitely cried gnashing of teeth many tears shed over the fact <laughs> that react table was no longer a component library you know like what i have to build my own markup and my own styles are you kidding me? I'm out of here. You know, I'm like, okay, bye. Cause this is so good. And yeah. what happened was great because I realized that, you know, the examples could just use table markup really simple. You know, you didn't have to understand a whole lot of the 
UI to grasp the concepts of what this table library did. And when you break it down from that, instead of being a grid, it just became kind of this sequential package of utilities that's responsible for all of the data grid things that people want. Mm -hmm. Just to name a few, but it's like, as soon as you want to add filtering, sorting, grouping, if you want to have column metadata or have custom renderers per column or like have an abstraction layer or invert control for columns to render things however they want. As soon as you want to do any of that, it's a pain. And that's what React Table solves. And it, you know, today it's still called React Table, but it also it's more of just like a data manipulation and data modeling library than anything else. You could take the data that spits out of React Table and put it into a chart if you wanted. But uh, yeah. it's just, it's convenient for tables and there's a lot of uh, utilities inside it for tables, like calculating headers and building row headers that are nested, calculating column and row spans, resizing columns, like all the typical things that usually come with a table. But it's all headless, so you get to do it whatever you want. You want to build it in Tailwind, you do it. If you want to take Material UI and shove React Table on top of it, you can do that. And that made people really happy, especially bigger enterprise companies that are like, we have very specific UI library stuff and I need it to look a very specific way, but we need all this great functionality. There's a company that is really big. Everybody uses this product. Every developer I know uses this product and they're releasing something new in a month that uses React Table. I don't even know nice. if I can say what it is. I probably could, but just to be safe, I'm not going to. But it's so cool that it's going to look exactly like their branding. And you're not even going to really know that it's React Table, but it's using it under the hood to perform all this data manipulation. It's really cool. Yeah, that's fascinating. And it's a, a fascinating way to build out this functionality because really when when you're working with that, like the hard parts are, you know, the filtering, the sorting, those pieces. And then like, I've worked on a data grid component for Dojo way back in the day. It was called dgrid. And like a lot of the bugs and, you know, as a user of it, a lot of the work that would go into using it was in like, you know, being able to customize how it rendered rows or rendered columns or rendered column headers and where, how the footer was placed and what that looked like and how the pagination buttons looked and worked and, yeah. you know, everything that they did. There was so much that every client that we had that would work with that, they wanted it customized to look like their stuff. They didn't want just like this generic grid. Yep. And this is just such a like it, such a mind-blowing thing to look at as something that I'm just seeing right now because it eliminates all of that and it takes away all of the stress from you as a maintainer because you just get to focus on the stuff that it's going to do best, which is right. like the data store manipulation type stuff and then getting you what you need to do the rendering that you want exactly. Oh, and then yeah. once you build those components on top of this, you can reuse those yourself, which yep. is super great. I won't lie, like a lot of it was, some of it was selfish. I just did not want to <laughs> have to go through issues anymore that says like, how can I change the styles on the header? <laughs> and now I don't even get issues like that. But for a while I was like, you just change them because it's yours. <laughs> you own it. And when you design a bad abstraction around your styles, you're the person responsible, not me. So it's brilliant as a maintainer. I, I love that. <laughs> so some of the things that it does, like looking at this, is it fair to say that it ships as like a 
a set of hooks that you would use for this? Version 7, yes. It's like there's okay. a base use table hook, and then you kind of add in functionality as you need it to that hook. Okay. Yeah, that's how it ships. Yeah, and that, that's kind of what I'm looking at is the docs for that, and specifically like use table. So you pass in like an object that that lets it know what the columns are that it's going to render, and then a second object that is the data. And I'm, I'm curious, does it do anything... Like, does it just work with that static data set or does it have a way of like doing any kind of like dynamic fetching or anything like that? Or is that kind of left up to the user? It's as well? mostly designed as a controlled component. And I'm, okay. and the more I get into building complex dashboards and data manipulation experiences, I think that's the best decision. And that's partially why I built React Query. You know, if you want to do data fetching the right way and synchronization, use React Query and then pipe it into the table. Yep. It's built in a way so that you can control... Well, version 7 is not as good as V8 is going to be, but you can control and opt in to control specific parts of the table from outside. And you can do that uh, just by passing in some state overrides and using some callbacks. And that's kind of the concept around asynchronous data is that you fetch the data and you supply it to the table, right? That way I don't have to deal with any asynchronous stuff inside of the table. I think that's the best way forward that I found. Yeah, and that's a good merging of those two projects together to create these really powerful components. And then of course you can take that data and render it as a chart with your other library. Which is exactly <laughs> uh, what I'm doing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I love that. I love how it all just kind of comes together and they just work together very well for the different pieces that they're in charge of, but then they can also be used separately for, for each individual piece. Yeah, that's great. So what can we expect to see in version 8 that's kind of the defining feature of that? TypeScript is going to be a big one. So nice. the community types are less than okay today. This new version is going to be just so great for types and autocomplete. There are a lot of options for a React table. The, the API surface area is larger, even for a headless utility. But it's all going to be autocompletable. And you're going to have some really good type safety options it's with really great generics that kind of permeate through the entire system and keep things really easy on you, the developer. And that's more like a developer experience improvement and also is covering a lot of just like the static testing layer that didn't exist before in React Table that we we kind of just had more of like the integration testing type stuff. So this is going to cover a whole slew of tests that we don't have to write. And then on top of like the developer experience improvements, it's coming with a couple of like API improvements as well. So controlled tables are going to be much easier to do. So you'll be able to basically house all of the state for the table outside of the table, say in a larger dashboard container. Nice and use that to control the table. and But you'll be able to opt into specific pieces. So if you don't want to manage the pagination, you can just let React Table keep managing that automatically internally. But for everything else, it can call back out into your code. So the controlled aspect of it is going to be a lot better. There's going to be some quality of life improvements for performance. So I've eked out a couple more, you know, like 100 more milliseconds less on the rendering time for accessing rows. And there's going to be some better APIs for composing your own row props or building your own plugins. And plugins is a great thing to bring up because V7 has this concept of plugins. 
Let me tell you, building a plugin system in JavaScript is the easiest, coolest thing you can do with JavaScript. Because it's just like, what do you want to do? We can do it. It's flexible. We can do whatever you want, right? You got a callback. We can mutate things. And, you know, TypeScript isn't even in the picture. But building a plugin system with TypeScript, I spent the last nine months researching the best way to do this. And ultimately, I decided that there's no sunk cost fallacy here. I'm not going to do a TypeScript plugin system in version 8. And that might take people by surprise. They're like, what? All my plugins that I wrote for V7, they're going to go away? I'm like, yeah, you asked for TypeScript. This is what's happening. So version 8 is going to be shipped with basically all of the features that you're currently looking at as plugins are going to be just in a monolithic bundle. But that bundle is going to be about half the size of what it would have been if they were individual because all of the glue code disappears and everything just you know works much closer together. So that also means the types are going to be way better together. There's not going to be like this weird mismatch of types between plugins. And I just think it's going to be overall better. You know, yeah. you won't be able to get down to five kilobytes for a React table. It'll probably be more like 12 to 15. But it's a data grid library for crying out loud. Like, yeah. Go use AG Grid or Material UI Grid and tell me how big those are. And then I'll let you complain about how big it is. Like, I was making the wrong trade-offs. You know, I'd rather have a system that works great than worry about code splitting on a library that probably doesn't even really need it. So yeah. those are going to be probably some of the biggest changes, breaking changes. Overall, though, everything's going to be way more performant, especially for people who are trying to memoize their rows or hmm. save on renders throughout the table. They're going to be able to do that a lot easier. So I realized I nice. just said a lot about V8. That's what I'm working on right now. So it's <laughs> easy for me to spew information about oh, it. Yeah. I'm really excited about it. It's probably about a third of the way done. So Nice. Awesome. That's great to hear. Great to hear that there's going to be an improvement or not an improvement, but a, an improved focus on developer experience. And yeah, I'm really looking forward to, to playing with V7 now more and getting into V8 when that comes out as well. Uh, one thing that I just wanted to close on real quick is just kind of a general comment about the TAN stack in general. And that is the documentation is just fantastic. And I really appreciate the work that has gone into that because clearly you can see that work has. Everything is like every time I have to go look up, you know, very specific React query options that I want to set, like, you know, increasing the cache or being able to like invalidate the cache after I run a mutation on other queries. Like it's, it's really easy. There's really good examples. And in a lot of cases you link out to like code sandboxes so I can just go play with it and see it running live and change it right there, which is great. So I appreciate that. And thank you for the work that you've put into that. And any closing thoughts that you have as we close out the show on Tanstack? Yeah, something just came to my mind that's uh, something that's been on my mind for not necessarily for React Query, but for React Table. I've been digging into open source sustainability for a long time. Mm -hmm. I'm in a unique position where I don't necessarily have to sustain my projects because I, I have a startup, I have a job, and you know, I'm not full time on my open source. But for some reason, I, I feel like the open source sustainability model could be better. And mm -hmm. I would want that to be an option if I wasn't in my position. And so I take that as an opportunity for me to explore new ways of sustaining open source that 
wouldn't put my family in danger or, you know, or put my career or whatever in danger because I have great things to fall back on. So one of the things that I've been trying over the last year or two has just been general sponsorship for my libraries. And it's working out really well. I've learned that there's sponsors that care about different things. Some of them want developer advertising, you know, by showing their logo. Some of them want consultation hours or free courses from, you know, the React Query course or whatever. Or some of them just want to give back, right? Everybody has different reasons. And it's been fantastic so far. One of the things that I'm going to be trying here with React Table version 8 is kind of a new experiment. Uh, not new, like I'm the first one doing it, but new for me. And I'm going to be running version 8 as kind of a, a time-based sponsorware for a little bit. So version 8 is going to come out as an alpha and a beta for React Table. And the alpha version is going to be available to like upper-level sponsors for a few months. And the beta is going to be available to upper and lower level sponsors for a few months. And then there's finally going to be like a general public rollout as a full open source product. Because I, I do believe that everything should stay open source that is. And, and I want to keep building open source software to help everybody out. But I think that yeah. this is going to be a great opportunity to explore sponsorware as a viable solution. So I just wanted to put that out there for people listening. You know, if tables are something that you're excited about and React Table version 8 sounds like, you know, it's going to be game-changing for you or your company, then, like, I'm always looking for sponsors who are willing to not just help out with the project and maintaining, but also, you know, help design the beginnings and work through the initial design of these alpha stages, kind of shape the future of React Table, if you will. So yeah. that's going to be coming very soon. I'm going to be opening the alpha stage of React Table probably in the next month or two, I hope. And that's going to be a thing. So if that, I'd like to just throw that out for anybody listening that that's the plan. That's great. I'm glad you brought this up. It is kind of a whole other topic to talk about, but it is something that I'm glad that you're exploring. It's, you know, sustainability and open source is something that is obviously a problem that we need to experiment with and to solve and to just become more comfortable with, you know, open source does not, it doesn't necessarily just mean it's free forever and that you should just work on it for free and, you know, give up all of this time because it's just not sustainable. It'll lead to burnout and overall packages will get abandoned or they just won't keep up, which is not great for anyone. So I'm glad that you're exploring this. Where would people go to sponsor that? Is that your GitHub sponsors yep. page? I'm doing it all through GitHub. If you want to become a sponsor, it's just github.com slash sponsors slash Tanner Lindsley is where you can sign up to be a sponsor. So there's some different tiers there. There's kind of a tier for everybody, you know, depending on what you want to do. Also, even if you don't want to be a sponsor, and I have a Discord channel that you can sign up for. There's a link to the Discord channel on tanstack.com. So you can basically get anywhere that you need to get for all my stuff if you go to tanstack.com. Everything's going to be there. Cool. Yeah, we will put that in the show notes for sure. And like I said, I'm glad that you're exploring this. And I'm excited about other projects too that are exploring it because we do need that sustainability yeah. in open source. And I plan on keep exploring it even beyond the sponsorship level. I, I'm hoping soon that I'll be able to build something akin to an AG grid, enterprise grid that's like an actual oh, yeah. paid product, you know, yep. supported by an open source entity, but has like a paid manifestation. Like 
kind of reminds me of what Ryan and Michael are doing with Remix. And yeah. I think that's also a great way. I'm really excited about exploring kind of these new ways to keep open source going and keep it healthy, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Well, good luck with that. I hope that your experiment works out really well. And we'll have links to that in the show notes. And Tanner, thank you so much for coming on. Hopefully we can have you back to talk about that maybe sometime and see how it's going and, you know, the future of these projects as well. So thanks so much. And we will see you next time. Thank you for listening to JS Party. If this is your first time with us, subscribe now at jsparty.fm or in your favorite podcast app. Just search for JS Party. You'll find us. And if you enjoy the show, please send it to a friend or a colleague who might also benefit from it. We'd really appreciate it. JS Party is produced by Jared Santo with music by Breakmaster Cylinder. We are brought to you by Fastly, Launch Darkly, and Linode. Next on the pod, Yulia Startsev from Mozilla joins Faraz and myself to talk SpiderMonkey, compilers, TC39, and more. That episode will be hitting your podcast feed next week. Thank you.